Welcome to Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, the weekly podcast that features the very best in career development in the nonprofit sector. I'm your host, Patton McDowell, and in addition to podcasting, I'm a leadership coach, a best-selling author, a speaker, and a mastermind facilitator. In fact, this episode is brought to you by PMA's Mastermind Leadership Program, which is accepting applications right now for our 2023 summer and fall cohorts. We are building a wonderful community of nonprofit leaders from across the country who are just like you. And if you think you are ready to better define your path to nonprofit leadership, check out this program. Go to our website, PattonMcDowell.com, for more information. Well, I know you're going to enjoy this fantastic conversation with Tom O'Toole, who's an executive director at one of the outstanding graduate programs in the country. It's the Brooks School of Public Policy at Cornell University. Among the many things he does in leading their public affairs programming is interacting with a lot of talented, current, and emerging nonprofit leaders through their MPA programming. So given his perspective, I pose a lot of questions to Tom, including what is the biggest challenge he sees for these nonprofit leaders now moving into leadership positions? And how do they manage the staff and board alignment that's so critical to their organizational development? And what about the burnout we are seeing, sadly, across our sector? What can we do about it? And finally, what advice does he have for current and aspiring nonprofit leaders, including the potential pursuit of graduate education? I feel certain there is a topic or two on your mind right now and that you'll benefit from the advice and counsel that Tom can provide. Lots of reasons to check out the show notes for this episode. It's number 205. Just go to the podcast page at PattonMcDowell.com, and you will find links to all of the resources we discuss, including, of course, how to get in touch with Tom himself and the great work he's doing through Cornell's Brooks School of Public Policy. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Tom O'Toole. Tom, thank you for joining me on the path. Thanks so much, Pat. I'm good to be here. I'm excited about this conversation, Tom. You are working with, in many cases, the next generation of nonprofit leaders there at the Brooks School at Cornell. And so I'm excited to talk to you about what conversations you're having, some of the issues this emerging generation of leaders uh, are pondering right now. In fact, let's start with that. As you talk to your current and prospective students in your graduate programs, is, is there a key issue or key challenge you think that they're wrestling with right now? I think it depends on on where they are in their careers. Um, I think a lot of, of younger professionals who are just starting out, um, they have really mission-oriented perspectives. Um, they want to do good work. They see the value in committing to a nonprofit career, but, you know, they hit the realities of taking that path in light of nonprofit salaries and inflation and housing affordability. Um, I think a lot of them have the mindset that maybe they'll work in the private sector for a few years and then return to nonprofit work when they can command executive compensation. But in a lot of cases, I think that's wishful thinking because, you know, they become accustomed to the higher salaries that um, private sector work entails. Um, so it's making a nonprofit career affordable. Um, you know, a lot of these individuals will still contribute to nonprofit work through, 
um, volunteerism, board membership, but fewer and fewer are able to commit to nonprofit careers just out of affordability concerns um, or around concerns related to the vulnerability of nonprofit roles, uh, particularly given the experience that a lot of nonprofits had during the pandemic. I also think that one of the challenges younger nonprofit professionals run into is the notion that um, very rarely in nonprofit work is your work defined by your job description, right? Uh, you know, nonprofits are usually all hands on deck and younger professionals more and more, um, I think, are very conscious of work-life balance and they tend to be very protective yeah. of their defined roles. Um, and that's for good reason, right? There are generations of workers who have incurred and ignored um, serious mental health issues, burn themselves out because they weren't protective of themselves and their roles. Um, and that runs up against you know, the need for nonprofit staff to be really flexible and adaptive. And finally, I think there's a sense of vertigo um, among a lot of nonprofit professionals um, in the early stages of their careers in terms of the scale of the challenges that they're trying to confront, you know, ranging from food insecurity to climate change, migrant refugee crisis. I think these are really overwhelming challenges. And for a lot of individuals, there's serious concern for burnout, right? right. Because a lot of those challenges, um, likely will never be resolved in their lifetimes. Um, so they lose that sense of intrinsic motivation that drove them um, to nonprofit work in the first place. And they become kind of cynical toward their ability to actually have an impact. And then for more senior professionals, um, you know, executives, I think there's a sort of, a, you know, vestigial shock around the pandemic. Uh, right. What we learned, where we succeeded and failed. Is there anything we can do to make our organization more resilient to the next shock that emerges? So it's a sense of risk aversion, um, you know, particularly in light of inflation and the economic contraction that we're currently seeing. Um, I also think, and and this is this is a perennial challenge facing nonprofits, but there's a tension that I see a lot of executives trying to resolve, and it's a tension between proactive and reactive work, um, especially given the, you know, the human, financial, and technological resources. Um, and constraints that most executives are, are are facing the fact that their portfolios are reactive, right? Yeah. They don't have the time to take a step back and engage in strategic planning for their organizations. Um, and even though a lot of grant making organizations are requiring that um, in their applications, right? Um, diversity, equity, and inclusion planning is a, is a great example that I can think of. Yeah. You know, DEI planning is something that requires really careful thought. It requires a, a really deep skill set that's often missing in a lot of nonprofit organizations, but more and more grant-making organizations are looking for evidence that nonprofits are taking this seriously. Um, you know, I've reviewed grant applications for several nonprofits, and it's it's really disheartening in a way because you can see in these applications and in talking to nonprofit executives that they want to do this work. They want to do it right. They know it's important. But between reactive work, fundraising, staff constraints, they just don't have the time or the expertise to do it. So it's really a catch-22 and a big reason why graduate programs like ours have developed consulting and advisory services for government and community-based organizations, because um, these are really an exchange, so to speak, right? Our students are able to learn from nonprofit executives and sharing expertise the organization might not otherwise have, so providing supplementary expertise to the organization. Love that. And again, you've hit on a host of issues. And, and unfortunately, many of them are are a restriction, if you will, or I guess limiting the uh, opportunities in the nonprofit sector, starting with compensation and all the other factors that you mentioned. But 
do you see some progress or are there some organizations that maybe are more enlightened on some of these areas to you, your point that funders are seeing it and they're investing in them, but otherwise many of the nonprofits I think are going to be left behind in the talent game. I mean, unfortunately, I'm, I'm seeing, well, unfortunately, unfortunately, I guess I'm seeing a lot more private sector organizations becoming invested in this work and, and leading the vanguard, um, which is a threat. I mean, right. It's a, it's yeah, a threat right. to nonprofit communities because as private sector organizations get more invested in doing public interest work, as they become more invested in um, supporting communities um, and looking at environmental, social governance principles to drive their work, um, they're just better resourced, better equipped to do it. Um, and so that's a competitive threat to, to nonprofit organizations that they have to be aware of. Um, and, um, you know, and also look to the private sector for guidance um, on paths forward. Yeah, well, it's definitely a challenge. Yeah, indeed. And you kind of I know your role now, which I want to ask you about. You see some of these intersections between the for profit, nonprofit and governmental sectors. Uh, talk about your role, Tom. What exactly do you do at the Brooks School? And let's talk about what experience led you to the work you do now. Yeah, so I'm the executive director for public affairs programming at, at the Jebby Brooks School of Public Policy at Cornell. Um, which is Cornell's hub um, for research, teaching, engagement around public policy, um, the broad field of public affairs, so public administration, public policy. Um, and so in, in this role, I oversee uh, two degree programs. One is a two-year residential master of public administration program, and the other is a new executive master of public administration. That's an 18-month program for professionals with um, a minimum of eight years of relevant work experience. Um, I also helped to create new degree programs at the Brooks School. Um, I knew um, custom trainings for the Brooks School. Um, and, um, you know, I also advise several student organizations and I teach courses on um, public administration and comparative public administration. Wow. And so in terms of, of um, I guess my the what got what brought me to this role. Yeah, and I think it's probably a story that would resonate with a lot a lot of your listeners because um, you know nonprofit leaders a lot of times they don't look for leadership it kind of finds them right. Um, yeah, you know, I, I don't think of myself as a natural leader, believe it or not, because I, I think I have a pretty big mouth, but I'm a New Yorker, right? <laughs> but I'm actually I'm an, an introvert. Um, and I never really sought out leadership opportunities throughout my career. Um, I worked, you know, in politics and law before higher education. Um, but when I graduated from my program, I saw a really compelling opportunity um, to leverage the resources of Cornell to really have an impact on people's lives in a positive way. Um, you know, one of Cornell's former presidents, David Scorton, once gave a speech that um, had a really profound effect on my thinking about universities and what they could do. Um, and it was called his global university speech, where he argued that universities like Cornell had um, an obligation, right? Um, not just the opportunity or the resources, but really had an obligation to share our resources and expertise with um, you know, the rest of humanity as an agent for diplomacy and positive change, um, that we had an obligation per our resources and our privilege, our global reach to serve at um, the vanguard of a new Marshall Plan, right, that would allow us to help those around the world um, lift themselves up. And that really opened my eyes to what universities could be and what we could do. Um, and I wanted to, to play some role in that. Um, and personally, as it happened, 
you know, when I finished my degree here at Cornell, uh, my wife had our first daughter. She was employed as an economic development planner for the city of Ithaca, where she's still employed today. So I was looking for opportunities and decided Ithaca, you know, would be a fantastic place to raise a family, which by the way, um, I think there are probably more nonprofits, uh, community-based organizations in Ithaca per capita than anywhere else I've been in the world. So it's, really <laughs> rich, it's a really rich community of nonprofits yes. doing great work. Uh, but at the time, the role that was open was assistant director for professional development, um, which helps students with you know, career management, developing internship and employment opportunities, uh, networking them with alumni, polishing their application materials, mock interviewing, that kind of stuff. Uh, but through that work, my portfolio started accreting, so to speak, right? Which yeah, now, now yeah. is probably the point where a lot of your audience would be like, oh yeah, I, I know what that's like, right? They, they felt that, um, yeah. I, right? So I eventually graduated to more of a, a leadership strategy role. Um, you know, so I wasn't looking for those opportunities. They were kind of situational. You know, you do good work with integrity and leadership begins to entrust you with more and more um, responsibilities. You know, when you want to take on risk to serve your clients, in this case, you know, our students better, you have the credibility to do that. And they give you the resources to support that work. Um, but I'm not, I don't think by nature, someone who looks to lead. I just look for opportunities to do work that's best aligned with my skill set and things tend to evolve from there. Um, and I've kind of always been like that. You know, um, as many in, in in public and nonprofit spaces are, I'm very I, I was very dramatic as a teenager. I did musical theater and I declined lead roles on a few occasions for a part that I just I just thought I could perform better in. Right. I remember I right. took the role right. of the cowardly lion in The Wizard of Oz because I knew I was best <laughs> suited to that role even though the cowardly lion is only on stage for half the play, right? Um, and I also have to credit my parents, right, for instilling right. in me this sense of entrepreneurship with integrity. Um, believe it or not, um, you know, I, I know I don't look like a biker, I don't have the trappings, but they ran a Harley-Davidson motorcycle business for decades and quite successfully. But learning from them, you know, how they managed the brand and how they treated their customers with respect and integrity, um, you know, I, I think it's had a significant effect on my outlook on leadership, and um, teaching and, and just my overall career trajectory. It's fantastic. And you're modest about what you've accomplished. And, and while maybe you didn't aggressively pursue leadership, you have certainly assumed it, accreted, as you noted, uh, the various experiences. And, and now it leads to some wonderful programming. And again, I'm biased having gotten to know you and the program a little bit more. But all right, so, so if I'm a nonprofit leader or aspiring nonprofit leader, Tom, why should I consider the Brooks School? I mean, what obviously part of the breadth of programming you offer is not just for nonprofit leaders, but how would you kind of pitch someone pondering graduate education? Yeah. Yeah. I think the philosophy of Cornell and, and certainly the Brooks School is that, you know, students learn best by doing, right? Cornell was founded as a land grant institution. And so we have a deep grounding in training those who like to get their hands dirty and sometimes literally. Right. Um, you know, the cooperative extension system evolved from Cornell. So for that reason, we build into our curricula as much as we can, you know, these opportunities for students to practice what they're learning. So we have courses on consulting for public and nonprofit organizations, um, our capstone, where students are actually working with real government and community based organizations to solve real problems that they're facing. Right. And that's a win win for our students and our clients. Um, we also have a curriculum that's both interdisciplinary and intersectoral. Um, which I think is a departure from more traditional academic programs that tend to be more disciplinary. Right. Um, so, you know, I, I think anyone listening to this podcast knows that some of the issues they're dealing with are, are just wicked, right? You can't resolve them through one disciplinary lens. You have to converge expertise from across disciplines to achieve any kind of impact. 
Um, so there's that interdisciplinarity and our curriculum is also intersectoral, right? Nothing new to any of your listeners, but nothing gets done just by one sector. And so for us to have impact and develop lasting solutions, we really have to you know, look for opportunities to forge collaborations across um, you know, the public, private, and nonprofit sectors. And that means training students how to work across both mission and profit-oriented organizations, right? And understanding points of leverage and incentives and mitigating risks associated with those kinds of partnerships. Um, and keeping an open mind and learning from practitioners, right? Academia is notoriously closed-minded when it comes to learning from those who are actually on the front lines and doing the work. And what I think sets the Brooks School apart is this very active dialogue between those who are doing the work and those who are preparing students to do the work. We don't want to know what challenges and what opportunities practitioners are seeing. Um, we want to know if any adjustments should be made to our curriculum, you know, to better reflect the realities of political, economic, and social life, right? It makes what we do more relevant and it makes our students more competitive on the job market for sure. But it also means that we're contributing to solutions in a more profound and impactful way. Um, I also think that one thing graduate education can teach, which you, you can't really learn on the job, um, are analytical frameworks, right? Um, so because nonprofit management is so fast and furious, right, um, and because it's reactive, I think it's often really easy to get overwhelmed um, by the nature of problems managers face, which can freeze a lot of people into um, inaction. And I think right, education right. provides those frameworks, right, which really serve as heuristics, right, for solving problems more efficiently. Um, and it allows you to learn cutting edge art and science. Um, so art you know, in terms of the storytelling, and you and I have had had discussions about the importance of storytelling, right, required to, you know, sell the work of your organization in science, in terms of analyzing trends and data, um, forecasting risk or outcomes. Um, you know, I also think nonprofit management is one of those professions where you very much get by with a little help from your friends, right? Yes. So developing yes. this global network of, you know, faculty and peers that can support your career as consultants or board members or donors, I think that's really important as well. How, how do you factor in the nuances of, of the global community in which you're already creating? I noticed I was able to meet some students who are, you know, from different countries. Um, I, I guess you're getting real-time feedback from graduates, from program partners and others, but how do you kind of factor in the curriculum that I guess must be constantly evolving, especially when you put a global lens on it? Yeah, we have a really strong alumni advisory board, right? Um, and, and they're sort of our steering committee on both leadership strategy and curriculum planning. Um, and they're they're based around the world. So they're they're kind of our eyes and ears um, that are providing us with this, this constant stream of feedback on what's changing in the field, what are the skill sets that our students have to develop um, in order to succeed on the on the job market and, and have an impact. Um, what are the emerging trends in the field that that we as faculty should be aware of and, and what are the conversations we should be having in our classes um, and where are the partnership opportunities with organizations that can best, you know, develop our students and prepare them, you know, to have an impact in the field. Um, so I think that's something that that's very unique. You know, um, I gave a, a, a presentation at NASPA, which is our, our global accrediting organization, the global accrediting organization for schools of public affairs a couple of years ago um, on three graduate certificates, um, micro credentials that um, we've developed as part of the program. And all of these were driven by alumni um, and they were sort of aghast at the fact that 
you know, we ceded this degree of, you know, ownership and design um, to faculty, to uh, alumni. Um, but really, you know, alumni are the ones that were kind of, uh, they were on the front lines. They Absolutely. were seeing what our students needed. Um, and and so it was really helpful in, in shaping the, these unique opportunities for students um, and it continues to be helpful in kind of shaping how our curriculum evolves and and the experiences that we're providing for our students. Well, what Tom, what's an example of something that advisory board said, hey, you need to be certifying on this or building this skill or experience? Was there a certain can you give us an example of something like that? Yeah, I mean, so the so one example is uh, we have a, a micro credential, a graduate certificate in environmental finance and, and impact investing. Um, and essentially, one of our alumni, um, Mark DeAngelis, um, a wonderful alumni, been very supportive of the program, um, but particularly in this space, um, he's an attorney, but he practiced in environmental finance for a number of years. And by the way, this is the, the, a perfect example of that space, which, which spans the public, private, and nonprofit sectors. Um, so he was practicing in the space, um, and he was watching these deals unfold. Um, and he observed that, you know, our students were coming out of out of the MPA program um, without the business acumen to really understand these deals. And so he would turn to MBA programs and he found that those students were graduating without the understanding of policy required to, you know, parse through the regulatory implications of these deals. So then he right. turned to engineering programs <laughs> because he, you know, he thought he would get students that or graduates that would that would understand the science behind the deals. And he was finding that that none of the programs, because they were so disciplinary, right? They were so siloed, were providing students with the comprehensive, broad-ranging suite of skills, uh, knowledge, skills, and abilities that were required to really navigate these deals. Um, and so he he encouraged us and worked with us to design a curriculum and a practicum exercise that um, would bring students together from across campus. Um, you know, the core would be the MPA program, but students from the business school, students from our College of Engineering, um, to go through this program as a cohort, learning that full spectrum of skills, um, engaging in an applied project for a real client organization, um, so that when they graduated, you know, they would have this interdisciplinary and intersectoral understanding and skill set um, required to, to do well in that space, right? Um, so that's a good example of, of a, an opportunity that was driven by you know, alumnus in this case, um, it's been continued. I, I think it's been in operation for almost a decade now. Um, wow. But it really, you know, it, it gives students that competitive edge um, in, in something that um, is just emerging, um, that there aren't many opportunities out there in higher education to, you know, define yourself as a specialist in. But really, I mean, it's a good example of, of kind of the, the philosophy we have, that interdisciplinarity, that intersectoral orientation, but then also an opportunity driven by the needs of practice. Yeah, it's fantastic. And I think it's a hallmark of your program. Of course, my bias is I want these talented uh, emerging leaders to stay in the nonprofit sector. But the fact is, you're preparing them for career success in a variety of ways. Of course, we hope they might stay in nonprofit, those that are you know moving in that direction. But you mentioned something earlier that I think both your current students and I'm sure some of your alums are, are mentioning is the burnout factor. And yeah. are, are you seeing some enlightened organizations? I guess you you alluded to this earlier, but those organ are there some organizations that are employing characteristics that maybe prevent the burnout, or is it just kind of something that you're seeing across the board? 
I think I'm seeing it across the board, and I, and I think that, and um, you know, th- this this might be controversial, um, but um, I think you really w- one of the things you have to do to avoid burnout is is you have to acknowledge the small victories um, as a team, um, and I think that's that's really hard to do, um, you know, especially given the reactive and and often frenetic work of nonprofits, you know, to right. take a step back and celebrate those those small victories. Um, and I think it's also important for executives not to hoard those for themselves, um, because you know, believe it or not, Patton, nonprofit executives have egos too, right? <laughs> and they tend, <laughs> I've seen a they few tend, of them, yes. And they they tend to claim those victories for themselves, um, uh, or the work is just so frenetic that they forget to tell staff that the client they helped, you know, process paperwork for got benefits. You know, the resume they photocopied lands someone a job, right? Yeah. Um, so the yeah. idea of sharing success, um, you know, small and large with staff so they understand and appreciate their role in those successes, um, you know, and, and their impacts on the larger communities they serve, right? Um, and so I, I think that's that's a big part of it. I think that, um, you know, one of the challenges now is that that many organizations, including in the nonprofit sector, um, have gone to either either fully or almost fully remote work environments. So it can be difficult for them to see kind of the immediate impact of their work. And I think a lot of them feel alienated um, from that impact um, or that that mission-driven work that that drew them to the nonprofit sector in the first place, right? Um, so I think it's it's um, you know there there are a variety of of things that you can do. Um, I, I don't think I can I don't see you know a lot a lot of um, innovation happening here across the board. Um, But I think that, um, you know, it's one of those things, like I said, it's, it's going to be perennial um, in nonprofit work just because, you know, everyone's bandwidth is so limited. You're usually taking on roles, as I mentioned earlier, beyond your defined organizational role, beyond your job description. So you're always going to feel tapped out. Um, but I think that you really have to ensure that your staff and your board are are connected to the small victories, and that's what will connect them to to driving your mission and vision forward. It's well put, and you're right, because the wicked problems that many of them are facing are overwhelming or can be. And so as a leader, an enlightened leader, I think that you do craft those stories and tell the, even the small victories uh, that, that, frankly, brought many of these leaders to the organization in the first place. You've got to give them that kind of morale boost. Um, that these stories do in fact tell. Um, yeah, touch- and, and I think that I, I think that's right. And and so you know th- there are things I think organizations can do right um, for for boards. I mean, board members get tapped out as well. I mean, they're balancing yep, yep. you know often you know very heavy responsibilities um, as a board member, but also you know busy professional lives. I mean, that's why they're on your board in the first place, right? Um, but I think it's really important for them to connect with you know, the clients you're serving. Um, so they understand what, you know, the the grassroots impact of your work are, what the what the impact of the actual client impact of, of the work is, right? And same thing with staff. I mean, I think a lot of staff, especially if they're back ends, you know, you're you're not you're not encouraging them to yearn for the vast and endless sea if they're just back office, right? I mean, they have to understand the the impact of their work. And so maybe that means you know, giving them some some latitude, you know, giving them some paid time off to volunteer in the communities that they're working in so they can see the broad impact of that work. Great point. And that's, again, I would describe as an enlightened viewpoint that I hope some of our listeners will take away and, you know, maybe reconsider how they are approaching their organization. 
you know, something else you alluded to, Tom, was that you're teaching your students and your programs, of course, analytical skills, including those that might bring a business lens to a nonprofit, which sometimes leads to maybe this organization shouldn't exist. Maybe we should merge with somebody else or dissolve our efforts because it can be done better elsewhere. But is that an active kind of teaching component that you're wrestling with or your students are wrestling with? Because obviously we we go to nonprofit work because we're passionate about the mission. We roll up our sleeves, but sometimes we have to step back and I guess bring that analytical approach to what we're doing. Yeah, this is this is so hard. And I've actually started including more cases on nonprofit closure or merger in, in my course. Um, it's very hard for, for students to, I think, especially you know, younger professionals with all, without a lot of experience to, to think about you know, um, organizations merging or closing um, just because they have that that you know mission-oriented perspective. And there's something obviously very emotional um, in seeing organizations that are here to improve people's lives. Um, you know, cease to exist, cease to operate, right? So, but I, I think I could probably answer it on on two levels, right? One is on, I guess, more of an executive level and a, and a personative level, and the other is on more of an organizational level. Um, and here I have to plug a book, um, but I by someone I think from your neck of the woods, Ronnie Bryant. Oh um, yes, you yes. might have had Ronnie on your podcast. Before, I have. Right? If yeah, I mean, so the, he wrote this great book, um, Driving from the Back Seat. And, you know, Ronnie's former president and CEO of the Charlotte Regional Partnership. Um, he's now the head of his own executive coaching firm. Um, he was also, I don't know if I mentioned this, Pat, and he was an executive in residence here at the Brooks School um, as well. And the, the book is excellent, right? So, you know, it's very accessible, a quick read, but also really insightful for, for nonprofit executives in, you know, taking stock of where they are in their careers, how they you know, how, where they are in their careers is aligned with the best interests of the organizations or not, right? Um, and a lot of the book encourages executives to be reflective on whether they're still advancing the mission and visions of the organization. I think Ronnie mentioned in the book that most nonprofit executives stay in their positions about five years past when they should have left, right? <laughs> right, right. I think that's, and I think that's kind of inevitable, right? Um, you know, especially given the degree of burnout that a lot of nonprofit executives experience, you kind of settle into this routine with the organization, you begin to lack uh, or lose some of the passion and the imagination you had to drive it forward. But you can't, um, you know, or you can't envision your career heading in a different direction. Maybe you're concerned you won't land a new position. So really being reflective on whether you're adding value to the organization, its clients, right? How your stagnation, which, you know, is, is kind of, or can be ego-driven is leading, you know, the, the people you care about, your board members, your staff, your clients getting hurt, right? Um, right. It's more of an executive or a personal perspective. You know, from an organizational perspective, you know, there there are obviously nuts and bolts to think about, right? And that's where that that business acumen you mentioned comes in. What's the financial health of your organization? Um, has something changed in the organization's um, internal or external environments that make it unsustainable? Um, has your portfolio been consumed by a larger organization with more resources, right? In other words, you know, are you facing competition to the point where you no longer have the distinctive competencies or value add in your space to survive? And so if, if any of those boxes are ticked, then you really have to be reflective and, and check your ego and determine, you know, whether your staff and clients would be better served by by closing, right? So allowing for a more efficient, effective, and equitable distribution of resources across your community or space, um, or merging with another nonprofit to leverage shared competencies and amplify impact. But it's 
you know, it's it's something that it's it's very, very painful. Um, you know, obviously it's a decision of last resort and you really have to do some deep thinking and be very transparent um, with all of your key stakeholders, um, your board members, your staff, the clients that you're serving, you know, really think about the risk to them of, of closing or merging. And will they be better served if you close? Right. right. Um, and how do you engage in thoughtful planning about, you know, how are they going to be supported moving forward if the organization closes or merges? I'm just encouraged you're teaching it. You're right. It, it's it's a outcome that we probably don't want to see when we lead an organization or, or working for an organization. But I do think it's the right thing to do because ultimately funders may make the decision for you, right? If they're right. like, wait, you're not, we're not going to invest in you if we don't see a viable kind of long-term plan. So good for you for kind of teaching that the case study, it sounds like that you're exploring in fact, I was going to ask you a, a final, maybe academic question. <laughs> you know, the pandemic impacted every sector and certainly the nonprofit sector in particular. But did you see any silver lining from, I guess, in terms of nonprofits adaptability or what you can teach in terms of how you deal with a crisis like what the pandemic did? But I, I wondered, did that kind of translate into some good discussions within the curriculum discussions for you or even in the classroom? Yeah, and actually, even before the pandemic, um, you know, we were we were training using simulations. Um, actually, we we hosted a simulation here on on global pandemic crisis management several years before the pandemic hit. Um, you know, I, I think it goes back to this this learning by doing philosophy in our program, right? Um, you know, we we all know that practice is messy, but you know, textbooks and classrooms are fairly hygienic. Um, so we have to bring some of that mess, right? That that ambiguity and that frenetic pace into the classroom. Um, and so we do that through um, experiential learning, right? Teaching students frameworks and then asking them to apply for frameworks by working with real clients, um, many of whom are experiencing the kind of crises that you're referring to, right? So it's not just connecting them to the real problems that organizations are facing, but the real emotional and the visceral emotional implications of you know the the challenges that that the organizations they're working with are facing, right? Um, so you know when when nonprofits are facing this this prospect of of um, merger or closure, I mean they're working directly with executives who are confronting these challenges, um, so they're able to see firsthand, you know how it's affecting executives, how it's affecting their staff. They're they're engaging in kind of that um, that risk planning and management to see you know, what the implications are of, of, you know, different, you know, leadership decisions and how they affect broader communities. Um, so it's, you know, you know, we're, we also heavily use the case method in our curriculum. Right. Um, you know, and so again, we're trying to simulate a lot of the ambiguity and messiness of practice. Um, you know, at the start of my class, I, I go over with students the differences between, you know, traditional textbook learning and and case learning, which is that, you know, we usually, under, not that they are, but we usually understand textbooks as um, containers of truth. Now right. they're not, but, right. you know, we that's the way we usually understand them. You know, you read them cover to cover and and there's no ambiguity and it's it's pretty cut and dry. Um, but, you know, one of the things I go through with, with students is that when you read cases, you know, you're reading cases that are full of, you know, unanswered questions and ambiguity and, you know, the perspective of, of the case author kind of shapes what you're reading. And um, and it can lead to a lot of different, um, you know, analytical outcomes and decision options. And so, 
you know, walking students through um, cases like that, where you have executives confronted with um, no win scenarios, um, which are very common scenarios, right? As you know, the reality um, public yep. and nonprofit sectors, and how do you minimize impact? And um, you know, how you know should your organization survive? And and you know, if if it should survive, um, how might it have to adapt? Um, so I, I think it's all rooted in this philosophy that we have here of of learning by doing of, of experiential learning. Um, you know, it's it's you know the, the classroom is is a relatively safe environment, um, but we try as much as we can to you know bring some of the ambiguity and and the messiness of practice into the classroom, so students know um, what they're going to be encountering in practice when they graduate. Fantastic. Uh, and it certainly it's exciting for me to have this kind of strategic conversation with you. And I know our listeners benefit from, uh, in some cases, the wicked problems that face our sector, but it is a reality. And again, I know that's what you are trying and doing very well through your program to prepare leaders for these kind of realities. I, I guess if there is a listener right now, Tom, thinking about graduate education to enhance their nonprofit leadership path, anything else you would offer kind of final advice to someone? thinking about this? I would say, you know, talk to other leaders in the space, um, graduates of programs that you're looking into to identify, you know, whether and how they're using their their education in practice. Um, you know, our goal is to really, um, you know, enable students to use their the tools and skills they're picking up immediately. Um, we're seeing this in a very profound way across uh, both our residential MPA program um, also in our new executive MPA program, which is, um, you know, it's a hybrid online program that's designed for in-practice executives with a minimum of eight years of work experience. Um, but the program has to really fit like a glove um, in terms of your needs, um, where you see your career going, where you see your organization going. Um, it's one of the biggest decisions that you'll ever make in your career. So, you know, I, I would just encourage you to take the time to carefully research your options um, choose the school that's the right fit for you, that's going to bring you into a community that's supportive of, you know, your learning goals, your professional goals, um, and that that has a mission alignment um, that, that's very much, um, you know, attuned to, um, you know, enabling students to take the next step in their careers. It's fantastic advice, and this conversation has been full of wonderful takeaways, Tom. For that, I am grateful uh, you've already lifted up one book uh, from a mutual friend, Ronnie Bryant. As you know, I ask every guest to share maybe another book or two recommendation that's been meaningful to you that you would maybe recommend to our listeners. Yeah, so so definitely, again, Ronnie Bryant's book, Driving from the Backseat, um, that, that's one that I find myself returning to um, just time and again. Certainly your book, Patton, which I think is is actually a great um, pairing with Ronnie's book. Um, the, the, I think those two should be on every nonprofit executive's bookshelf. <laughs> the last book that I'll recommend, which is an absolute favorite and which might surprise you, um, is by Glenn Berger. Um, and it's called The Song of Spider-Man, the inside story of the most controversial musical in Broadway history. Um, so this is the story of, of Spider-Man the musical, which was <laughs> written by Glenn Berger um, it was directed by Julie Tamer, who you might recognize. She was with the original director of The Lion King on Broadway, right? Which was wow. a phenomenal hit, right? Music and lyrics by U2, right? So how could you go wrong? Um, but it's a Spider-Man musical, right? Again, I'll say it again, a Spider-Man <laughs> musical. Um, and there are just so many lessons on leadership that you can draw from that book, you know, particularly for, for nonprofit managers, because it's really the story of what happens when you know, we allow passion to overtake sensibilities, right? 
Um, it's such a fun book and it's it's just a very, very, you know, if you're if you're looking for kind of a, a very accessible summer read with some some great takeaways. Um, it just resonated with me a lot in terms of some of the nonprofits that I've worked with. And it's likely not on the bookshelf, you know, of the typical nonprofit wonk, um, but but highly recommended. <laughs> that is fantastic. I have noted that immediately. And uh, just it sounds fascinating in and of itself. So thank you, Tom, for adding that to our list of recommended reads. My last question, as you know, is where can our listeners find out more about you and the great work you're doing? Sure. So um, our website is is www.publicpolicy.cornell.edu. And then from there, you can find links uh, to all of our degree programs at the Brooks School, um, our faculty and staff profiles, um, some of the research and engagement work that we're doing. Um, and you can follow us on social media as well. Fantastic. Tom, we'll link it all up in the show notes for this episode. And I will thank you once again for joining me on the path. Thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure, Ben. Well, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Tom as much as I did and came away with some practical ideas that can guide your professional leadership journey, perhaps including graduate education or other ideas to help your nonprofit organization be more effective. Don't forget about the show notes. They are available for this episode. Go to our website, patentmcdowell.com. It is episode number 205, and you can find out more about Tom, about the Brooks School, and its many programs to serve both current and aspiring nonprofit leaders. As always, I would be grateful if you would share this episode with someone else on the path. And if you haven't already, you can subscribe to this podcast. Just go to the podcast page at patentmcdowell.com, and you will see the follow button. By clicking that, you will not miss any of our weekly episodes. They come out every Thursday. Of course, if you like this episode, click on the Episodes button at the top of that same page, and you can scroll through thumbnails of some of our most popular episodes or search by topic or guest name. Thanks, as always, for what you are doing in the nonprofit sector, especially right now, and keep up the good work for causes that are most meaningful to you. I'll keep bringing you content that can help you do it even better. Have a great week. I'll see you next time on The Path.